You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 67. Today we're asking the question, what questions should you ask to constructively resolve an argument about safety theory? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. But this week we're doing something a little bit different and hopefully we're providing an answer to a question that will help you as a listener, as a consumer of safety research or as a practitioner to understand and take forward ideas in a constructive way and contribute to the further development of those ideas. So Drew, what's today's question and and why is it an important one that we answer on the podcast? David, I fear that today's question might be how hypocritical can Drew and David be when we talk about arguing on the internet? Our question comes out of some thinking that we've been doing recently in response to some pretty vehement debates that tend to go on in social media about safety. And what can we as a community do to improve the quality of the conversations we have so that they take us towards a constructive place instead of disagreeing with each other? So as we did with the manifesto, these are as much maybe reflections for ourselves as reflections for you. Thinking about what would we like to be doing ourselves and what do we reckon that other people could do along with us to try to be a bit more productive when we get into arguments on the internet or elsewhere about the right way to think about safety. And David, I guess there's a couple of sort of premises that we've established through our discussions that we try to sort of embody on the podcast. The first one is we think that sort of most of the disagreements disappear once people understand what the disagreement actually is. That, you know, often we argue for the sake of arguing and argue because other people disagree with us without being really clear about what we are standing for. And then we think, actually, if there is genuine disagreement, then getting rid of some of that unnecessary arguing and focusing on what the genuine useful point of disagreement is, is what's going to help us move forward. So, Drew, the structure of the podcast today is we're going to go through a series of questions that you can ask yourself or ask other people, in fact, fact, um, openly ask people who you disagree with, to try to turn that disagreement about, you know, safety and approach to safety into a constructive constructive discussion that's informed by both theory and evidence. So instead of saying, I believe this and you believe that, therefore we can't be friends anymore, what we're trying to do in at least this episode is to say, well, that's really interesting that you believe that. Now, let me understand why and, and how and, and what is different from what I think is, is, is my truth and where are the gaps in both of our understanding and how we can move forward. Now, you may never get everyone to agree on everything. But like you said, Drew, I think knowing exactly what we disagree about allows you to kind of turn to the evidence, turn to the research, turn to your own practice and try to learn something new. So shall we leap into the questions? Let's do that. So the first one we've got here is just asking yourself, what is the original source? Now, like all questions, we don't want people to turn this into a weapon. Yeah, we don't think that, you know, the instant response to an argument is give me a citation, you know, give me evidence you can point to. I, I think this is sort of taking a very humble understanding that we all take shortcuts, all of us. No one can read everything in its original form. 
So a lot of what we know isn't from the original sources, it's from other people telling us about it. And that's fair enough, we need to understand that. We all believe lots of things about things that we've never actually read ourselves. But if we're going to get move forward, it's important that we sometimes read stuff in its original form. And that matters more and more the more we want to take part in an argument. If you want to actually argue for a position, then it becomes more incumbent on you to start reading those original sources. And it's good for everyone to sort of consume that balanced diet of some summaries of stuff and some original sources. Summaries to know broadly what's going on, original sources to gain depth on things that are relevant. Just like, you know, to find out what's going on in the world. Sometimes we skim our Twitter feed and sometimes we read long form articles. We need to know broadly what's going on and in depth about the things that we care about that we want to talk about. Yeah, I like the way, Drew, I think um, particularly if you've got a position on something or at either end of the thing, if you if you strongly agree with something or you strongly disagree with something, that's an opportunity, I think, to go deep. And just make sure that when you are putting those positions there that you, you know, a good understanding of of the original ideas and, and what what the, the theory or the approach is, is based on. So I think under that, I think there are a couple of more black and white principles we can try to follow. One of them is we shouldn't accept descriptions about things coming from opponents of those things. That's a really easy habit to get into because none of us likes reading stuff that we disagree with. But when we read commentary on stuff that's constantly from people who agree with us, we get a very um, unfair and uncharitable interpretation of what the alternate point of view is. So particularly if you want to join in the criticism of something, that's when it's really important to read the original thing that you're criticising. So Drew, maybe don't form your own view and argue a view on scientific management or behaviour-based safety based on reading Sidney Decker's work. Yeah, and in the in the other direction, I, I have been tempted at times to put up a post on LinkedIn, you know, nine signs that someone criticising safety too has never read the book. I, I, I think you know, I'm wary of both sides-ism, but I think in safety arguments, very often both sides have not read the original sources that the other side is coming from. Um, another useful thing is... Because we can't read everything in depth, keep track of people that you trust as reliable interpreters of original sources. So when you do go and read the original, sometimes, keep track of who else on your side has given a fair summary and who has given an unfair summary. And so learn to trust that even people on your own side of an argument may not be fair interpreters. And some people are actually quite good at being balanced and fair as interpreters of sources. And you keep in mind that there may be more than one original source. Uh, you know, just because you know, even just a single author can write multiple things and it's tempting to use their name as a shorthand for a whole body of ideas encompassed by them and other people. So, you know, be aware that the very original source of idea may not be the most up-to-date version. The person who named an idea might not be the person who started that idea. This makes it harder to find the original sources, but it is something that we need to be careful of. So, Drew, a few examples um, in this area just for people to... To, to think about about the original sources. So like an idea about resilience engineering, for example, it, it's, it's important to be clear when we're talking about a whole field of study or a single idea. So sometimes when we're talking about a field of study, we're looking at sources that are more books where you get chapters written by different contributors or contributing a particular idea or a particular theory within that field of study. So you, you can get a flavor of the field by reading kind of like one or two of these edited books but then you can't really make this statement like, I agree or disagree with resilience engineering. You've actually got to start talking about the individual ideas that sit 
you know, within that within that particular field. Yeah, and, and less an entire field is genuinely pseudoscience. It's always very, very dangerous to dismiss an entire field, um, particularly since we tend to do that based on the worst representations of that field. I think we do that a little bit with safety culture, don't we? I think that that's a fair accusation. And one outside safety people might be familiar with is the way some people talk about evolutionary psychology. And they pick the worst examples of things claiming to be evolutionary psychology that even the reputable scholars in that field don't even think belong to the field. And as a result, they dismiss that entire field of study instead of listening to the best of what it has to say. So a few sort of different patterns to look for. There are some times when a single author is associated with a single piece of work where it really is worth going back and reading that one. So these are the sort of like the classics in safety. So, you know, if you're interested in normal accidents... Most scholarship by normal accidents is done by the original author, Charles Perrault. Most of what Charles Perrault has to say about it is in a single book called Normal Accidents. You want to talk about normal accidents, you read that book, you're ready to comment on it. Um, you get other authors who have very long careers, and over those careers they've got very focused research programs. Uh, so I think a couple of good examples of this are Nancy Levison at MIT and Tim Kelly, uh, originally of University of York. Now, those people do have like solid chunks, but if you want to understand what they say, you've got to update your knowledge with what they've written recently and get the most evolved version of that work. So, you know, Levison has fairly recently put out a book, Engineering a Safer World, which is her sort of like most up-to-date, all the ideas encapsulated in one place. But you've got to be careful in 10 years' time. You can't just go back and assume that Engineering a Safer World is the latest version of those ideas. Um, Kelly went the other direction. Sort of most of his ideas came out in his thesis, but then he's steadily paper by paper built on those ideas. So if you just go back to the thesis, you're missing out on the best version. But then there are other people that are harder to interpret because they're in this sort of constant dialogue with a community of other thinkers. And the ideas in their work are bigger than any of the individual authors. So you've got to be careful. Are you talking about the sort of conversation or are you talking about the single work? So a couple of authors like that are Holnagel and... Is it pronounced Weick or Weick? Weick. Yeah, Weick. So you know... Holnagel doesn't own the idea at Safety 2. That draws on a long tradition and conversation of sort of competing ideas in organisational theory. You can say, do you like the book, Safety 1 and Safety 2? Do you agree or disagree with what he says in the book? Uh, although even then you might need to sort of zoom in on the particular statement or particular chapter because he contradicts himself a bit. But you know, he doesn't sort of like own that whole family of ideas in the same way that Levison owns Stamp or Kelly owns Goal Structuring Notation. And then you've got these other authors who just like dabble all over the place. So I think Andrew Hopkins is a good example there. His journal papers are very different from his books. You, you can like both. You can like just the books and not the papers, or you can like the papers but not the books. But you've got to sort of take each idea on its merits because he has so many different ideas. So Drew, that sort of, I think, so the first question we ask where, where, we, where we encounter a disagreement with our own ideas um, is what's the original source and, and checking the, the source around our own ideas and checking the sources around the ideas, the opposing ideas, if you like. So then the second question we need to ask, I suppose, which is obvious once we've located the source, is what does the original source say? So what should we be looking for here? So the important thing here is that all of the big ideas in safety are part of a conversation. Uh, this conversation has been going on since around the early 20th century. Obviously, safety existed before then, and some of these ideas existed before then. But that's when we formed societies and journals and started having the like conversation about the ideas. 
And so when you look at each work, you need to read it in the context of that conversation. Uh, so things you can ask are, what were the industrial conditions at the time? Uh, in particular, like what recent accidents had happened that they might be directly or indirectly commenting on? Uh, what were the prevailing ideas, attitudes and practices that they were sort of commenting against the background of that they assumed everyone knew or tended to be doing? And you'd basically like, what was the author responding to? So they're probably positioning themselves against trying to change a way of thinking. You've got to understand what that way of thinking is that they're trying to change. I think, Drew, the big ones in, in safety for us is just the commentary that we make around, say, Frederick Taylor's work on scientific management or um, Heinrich's work in, in the 30s. And we, I suppose, interpret those ideas or what the sources say in our current context in 2021, sitting inside our organisations. And that's not the context. That's not what they were responding to in their conversation. That's not the circumstances that they faced. And when we when we put ourselves in the shoes of the idea, the context and the time, then it gives us a better understanding of what was actually underneath what they were, what they were trying to um, propose. So, so like one of the interesting things about both of them, and particularly Heinrich, because we've got the trace of all the versions of his book, that each time he wrote a new version, he wasn't just updating his ideas. He was responding to things that people had said in response to the earlier versions, how they'd misinterpreted it, how they'd applied it. And so you've got to see that ongoing conversation rather than just sort of take his work and plonk it in the modern day and ask whether you agree or disagree. And another example from our recent episode with Jim Reason and Swiss Cheese is we had almost a decade of conversation between Reason and other people around the Swiss Cheese model. So, so two particular recent examples of, of like arguments that people have had and why we think this like matters for current arguments. So a lot of our readers might be aware that Nancy Levison self-published recently a critique of Holnagel's Safety 1 and Safety 2. Uh, it was called Safety 3, A Systems Approach to Safety and Resilience. Now you can read the, that just on its own, but to understand where it's coming from, you've got to know that Levison and Holnagel have for decades been part of the same general movement arguing for a more complex understanding of accident causation. Uh, they both call it a systems approach. They're both responding in the same way to what they see as people oversimplifying accident causation. But then in the book Safety 1 and Safety 2, Holnagel talked about Levison's work in a pretty negative way, essentially putting her work alongside the work that Levison had been criticising. So you can see, you can read that it, as a dismissal of Levison's ideas and her life's work by saying that you know, Levison is basically the same as the people she's criticising. Not a particularly fair thing to do. And so Levison wrote a response, which is a not unreasonable complaint that when Holnagel talks about the status quo, he's lumping too many things together as safety one. And so it's not really appropriate or fair to read what Levison said without understanding that conversation and understanding that actually most of what Holnagel says, Levison agrees with. It's just you know, what she disagrees with is not his proposals for safety too. What she disagrees with is his characterization of what is essentially her work. So I think that sort of leads on uh, your comment, David. Oh, I just think it's, it's I'm just putting my, myself in the shoes of the listeners around um, this is starting to be a, a difficult proposition to understand these ideas because I, I, I find a source and I read a source and now that's part of a broader conversation. So I've got to think about what other sources might be out there, you know, before this particular piece is written. And it is hard. And that's why it is. And that's why I think, Drew, we're probably a little bit frustrated when we see these really emotional, simplified disagreements, because it, this is actually hard. 
to to go back to sources and 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 understand the context and understand what's come before because these people who are generally the sources are people that spend every day reading and thinking about these things. Yeah, and I mean, it, it might sound like we're saying before you're allowed to even take part in this debate, there's a heck of a lot of work you got to do. And to a certain extent, that is exactly the conclusion to draw from this. It doesn't mean that like it's an exclusive club, but we'll sort of talk a bit later on about how you can usefully join in the debate. Because if you want to sort of argue at that level, then you do actually have to do the work to understand everything that's been said so far. Otherwise, you're that person sort of jumping into a conversation halfway and injecting their opinion without understanding what the conversation's really about. And I think knowing your network to and, and having a network around it, and that's the thing that LinkedIn, I suppose, is good for, is a network of sorts. Because an example that we had, I think, on episode 17, um, I spoke to Carsten Bush about Heinrich, who'd done a thesis on Heinrich's work, and he's just written and published a book on Heinrich's work. And so I know from a trusted source, like I know that if I've got a question about Heinrich, I can go to Carsten, for example, without having to start finding 1931 books or and trying to understand that for myself. Yeah, no, that's a good tip. So another thing is consider the overall intent of the work rather than taking it too literally. As an academic myself, I really hate saying you shouldn't take academics literally. But the fact is that there is a whole tradition of scholarship that links together rhetoric and metaphor along with literal claims. And a lot of safety comes out of that tradition. So the result is that you really do need to do a bit of reading between the lines and saying, yeah, they said that, but is that really the point of what they were saying? That, so good example, that's definitely the case with Heinrich and his discussion of ratios. Yes, it is literally true that Heinrich did give these precise ratios and did make claims that these precise ratios were true. But that was never the main point that he was trying to make. The main point he was trying to make was this relationship between you know, that accidents have causes that go back in time. And we've got to choose the right point in time that is not so far back that it's meaningless and not so close to the accident that the accident's already happened. And so what a lot of people do is they pick on those precise ratios and they do whole studies testing whether those were the correct ratios or not, rather than engaging with, do I agree or disagree with Holnagel's uh, overall claim, which is that, you know, the best point to intervene is agree that there are systemic causes, but focus on the behavior because that's the best point to try to interfere with the accident sequence. And I think the other literal one, the other literal example is safety one and safety two. People who I suppose disagree with safety two, a lot of the times that there's a disagreement with safety two is basically people saying we shouldn't be throwing out everything to do with safety one. What we actually need is some kind of middle ground between safety one and safety two. And that's kind of exactly what Holnagel has been saying the whole time. And even throughout the whole book with a few exceptions is say, actually, safety one is just not the whole picture. Do this other stuff as well. And maybe here's a few things that you can you can let go off a little bit. But you can see in some of these arguments this idea that, well, I don't agree with safety two because I believe some of the things in safety one are good. Yeah. And, and it's annoying that you can actually go through Holnagel's work and you can find sentences or paragraphs where he does clearly say throw out safety one. But then that just makes him a confusing writer, not that that's not his overall position. Um, so sort of look for the overall position that someone's giving. And I think it's sort of along with that is remember that almost all of the big ideas in safety are really a lot more nuanced than either their critics or their advocates suggest. Because of the way we tend to promote and spread ideas in safety and perhaps the borderline between research and consultancy, then a lot of people take rhetorical positions that are much stronger than their true intellectual positions. 
Usually that's because they think they, they don't like the status quo and they're trying to push it in one direction. And because they're trying to push, they come off much more strongly than probably their sort of more reasoned ideas are. So you don't get sucked into responding to that heavy push rather than looking for what the nuance of the position is. I think one example of that, Drew, is even the last three weeks where we've recorded the, the three episodes on just culture is even if just the, the rhetorical position is never blame anyone, never punish anyone, never never hold anyone accountable, you know, that simple um, soundbite. And that's nothing about what is kind of in the nuanced discussion about what, you know, different retributive and restorative just cultures actually look like and the reality of organisations and so societal expectations and all of those other things that we've spoken about over the last three weeks. Yeah, no, that, that's a good example, David. And I'm going to throw in a mere culpa on our own safety clutter paper. I've given talks at conferences that are basically rants against safety clutter and like advocating for decluttering because you it's taking strong positions like that that make for interesting talks rather than putting up lots of your know, detailed you know, academic description. And so you could be forgiven for thinking that you know, I'm a, I believe we should get rid of all safety bureaucracy and that that's what my work is about. Uh, whereas if you read the text of the paper, you, most of it isn't about decluttering at all. It's sort of a careful description of the organizational mechanisms that create clutter and an argument that there's no point in decluttering unless we try to first understand these mechanisms and try to subtly sort of disarm the mechanisms rather than focusing on the clutter, which is more of a symptom. And so, yeah, that's a good example of where I think I have publicly taken positions that are much stronger than our academic work actually suggests or supports. Uh, should we move on to the next one? Yeah, so so I think the, the third question, so you're in a debate, you've gone and found a source, um, you've done some reading around it, you've worked out what it says, so then you've got to basically take what it's what the broad ideas are saying and ask the third question, which is, what does this theory say about how accidents are caused? Because ultimately, that's 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 one important thing that we're trying to um, trying to understand. So we we've got the idea, and now how how can we think about accident causation? What the theory says about accident causation? So I think we need to give a sort of like brief disclaimer that it's not like absolutely essential that all theory in safety is about how accidents has caused. But most theories in safety have a large element, either explicitly or implicitly, of saying this is how accidents are caused, therefore this is how we stop accidents. The thing that's furthest to the exception, I think, might be HRO theory, which some people interpret as a theory for how to inter prevent accidents. But when you sort of read it, it often doesn't sort of like make that claim. No, I think, Drew, when I thought about HRO theory, I think, okay, so so what the theory is doing is it's describing, for example, if we work the example is describing a set of characteristics that researchers found to be common in organisations that seemingly operated these complex high-risk operations reliably over time. And so Roberts and her colleagues thought that these things were contributing to that. It doesn't tell you anything about how accidents might happen in HROs or um, in any other organisation that's not a HRO. It's just theorising some common organisational characteristics of seemingly reliable high-risk organisations. Although, and I don't want to be too nitpicky, uh, remember what we said about reading work in context, that they wrote these HRO papers in direct response to Charles Perrault's work, claiming that accidents were inevitable in complex organisations. So in a sense, they you know, once you look at the whole conversation, it's quite a reasonable reading to say that they're reading this as a solution to the problem, that they think that accidents are not caused the way Perrault says that they're caused and that therefore accidents are prevented the way HROs prevent them. But the interesting thing is that once you dig into what the theory says, almost all of the theories agree on the basics, and they agree far more than they disagree. 
So pretty much everyone agrees that there is a large causal field leading to the accident. So in other words, lots of causes, and those causes interact with each other in complex ways. You, there, there is no actual author who really says your accidents are caused in really simple ways. What they're trying to do is they're trying to take this understanding that they're complex and saying, what is a relatively simple way to think about this that is going to help us prevent accidents? So they all sort of acknowledge the complexity and then artificially try to impose some sort of simplicity. And so when they do that, often what they're doing is they're trying to establish categories of causes and they're trying to place particular significance on some causes. Um, so you can look at a different theory, and basically if you read every theory as, yes, accidents are complex, but let's focus on this. Yes, and I think that's where we see the emergence of the significant causes. So it might be behavioural-based safety where we're placing a significance on, you know, the individual behaviour as part of the cause, or in if in safety culture we might be playing, placing significance on the role of leadership or in some areas like resilience engineering, we might be placing particular emphasis on on gold conflicts or some of these other things, but it's the, it's sort of all drawn from a, from the same causal field. I think each of these theories would recognise each of those other causes, just not place the same significance on them as as the specific theory does. Um, yes, yeah, so so there's a couple of things that we can take out of that. The big one is that if you read everyone as saying that, it makes it much easier to agree instead of disagreeing. So if you, re if you read behaviour-based safety saying, like, some of what contributes to accidents is human behaviour, yes, everyone should agree with that. They then say, we think, therefore, that we should focus on this human behaviour. That bit you might disagree, and you might say, you know, yes, I agree that humans matter, but I think generally we should focus a bit less on human behaviour. Or you might talk about a particular circumstance. You know, when we talk about driving, we can then have a conversation. You know, how much of driving do you think is about design and rules and processes, and how much do you think it's about human behaviour. Okay, what about working at heights? How much is it organisational decisions? How much is equipment? How much is human behaviour? We, we, once we've sort of agreed that we all agree, we can focus on the disagreements much more productively. And then the other one is that when you've got theories that disagree about where to focus, you don't need to decide who's right. You, it doesn't hurt you that someone else is focusing on human behaviour, even though you want to focus on system design. And in fact, you might, in your organisation, want to draw from both of those ideas. You might want to be doing something about design. You might want to be doing something about behaviour. Um, there's nothing fundamentally incompatible or wrong with doing that. David, do you want to say anything about any of the particular theories? So we've sort of mentioned behaviour. I guess we've implicitly mentioned system safety by talking about engineering processes. I think one of the things that I'd probably say is that theories are probably, if I think about some of these questions that we've asked about, what is beyond the sources, what does it say about accident causation? It's probably the more recent theories that um, say less and less about that. So even beyond HRO into... RE and safety differently and safety too and human organizational performance and some of these these ideas, it actually becomes very hard to understand what these theories say about how accidents are caused, other than they all just say the accident's an emergent property of the complexity of the system. No, I, I think that is fair. And I think partly that's a product of the fact that we've hit the limits on being a bit being too reductive. So we have we have learned that we can achieve improvements in safety by focusing just on human behavior. We've learned that we can cause improvements on safety by focusing just on human design. But we've also discovered that we can do both of those things and then a major accident still happens. And so we need to then stop narrowing the focus and try to sort of come up with more explanations of complexity. And you know, funnily enough, when we try to explain complexity, our explanations get complex. Okay, so this I think is where it starts to get useful, which is 
so far we've sort of talked about what the theory says, but the takeaway from that is all about just whether we agree or disagree. It's not particularly useful. So at some point, we've got to get to the point of asking, what does the theory say that we should do? Now, a lot of the time when we argue, there's like an implicit assumption that we can only agree with one of the theories because they're somehow like mutually exclusive. And once we get down to the point of what does it say that we should do, even quite fundamentally different theories can still tell us to do the same thing <laughs> or two different things that we can do both of, or we can do both at different times, or we can focus on one or focus on the other. And David, I don't know about your thought. My sort of personal theory is that it's because people try to justify their new ideas by saying the old ideas are insufficient or inadequate or bad, therefore you should listen to my new idea. Um, and that's why we sort of get into the, this habit of thinking it's got to be one or it's got to be the other. Whereas that rhetoric, you know, that's not actually a logical argument. Um, if, if it's worth doing something, then it's worth doing it for its own sake, not just because what you're currently doing is bad. You could sell learning teams without criticising any other form of activity by saying, whatever else you're doing, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's helping, whether it's not helping, here are the benefits you will get from learning teams. Here is the evidence. But we don't. We tend to say, look, your current accident investigation processes are failing you. Here's what's bad about them. Therefore, do learning teams. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think the other thing that you mentioned there, Drew, when it says, what should we do um, about these things not being mutually exclusive? Because if you're trying to string together a, a management safety effort in your organization, you might go, for example, to go, okay, well, scientific management in 1911 says to understand work to the nth degree so that you can best possibly set um, the operation up to be reliably and successful and profitably and profitable and safe. Then critical steps, for example, you know, book about to come out now in 2021 is basically going to tell you the same thing, understand work and identify the really critical um, steps and risk important actions in that work activity and make sure you get really dependable human performance and, and role performance around those critical steps um, to manage the risk. And so then if I thought about, say, safety differently or learning teams might say, go and um, understand work as done by talking to the people involved. And then you identify some really um, important um, behavioral controls. And then you actually go, well, actually, now I need some kind of, oh, you know, even hesitant a little bit to say behavior-based safety program, but somehow I need a way of creating reliable human behavior in certain situations in my organization. So there's these ideas if we, if we suspend our judgment on the practical application of these ideas and the things we've seen in organizations and stick with just the ideas themselves, you actually need to have a holistic safety management effort in an organization. I personally believe that you have to actually string some of these ideas together. And I think there's, there's an important subtlety here. Just because two ideas end up suggesting the same action doesn't mean that there's nothing new in the new idea. It doesn't mean that it's not a contribution to our overall understanding. It doesn't mean it's not going to help us do that idea better. So it's a pretty poor criticism of a new idea to say, yeah, but we're already doing that. Um, because what the idea suggests we do is not the end of the idea. Um, but what it means is that we don't let the academics have that argument, but there's no need for practitioners to buy into one theory or the other. You'd, if three different theories all suggest you should do something that looks like learning teams, even if you sometimes call it one thing, sometimes call it another thing, it still looks like a learning team, then you don't have to say, I'm doing this because I believe in safety too, or because I believe in 1960s total quality management, or because I believe in 1930s, make sure you understand the work before you try to manage it. They all say, do the activity. So you, it's quite okay to just do the activity. You have the argument if the argument leads you to different conclusions not just because it leads you to a different level of being right about the theory. The, the other thing that's related to this is that 
a lot of the people who present their own theories are critical of other theories, not because they're mutually exclusive, just because of like the research traditions they're in. So a good example of that is there are a number of different criticisms of safety culture and safety climate. And none of those come from people who have to get rid of safety culture and safety climate in order to sell their own ideas. In fact, their ideas might be quite compatible with also doing safety culture and safety climate activities. It's just that because of the research traditions they come from and the type of scholarship they do leads them to criticise this idea. So as far as practitioners are concerned, those sorts of criticisms aren't particularly interesting or useful. So you know, just because you love, you might love Decker's ideas for safety management, that doesn't mean that when Decker criticises safety culture and safety climate, you're obliged to agree with that criticism in order to be consistent in your own thinking. Uh, just because you hate Decker doesn't mean you're obliged to love safety culture and safety climate just because you disagree with him. And I think the other thing that I've also fallen into the trap of, Drew, a bit um, is to know when you are um, critical of an idea or whether you're critical of the way that that idea is being translated into practice in organisations in your experience. So many times what we see in organisations, whether we talk about these things, even even um, safety culture or behavioural safety or even safety differently or something, we see what one organisation does and we then make, I suppose, a judgment of the idea itself rather than the application of that idea, which is typically always not what the person who came up with the idea intended. Um, so, so I think that works in a few different ways. Uh, one of the interesting ones is I think it works backwards. So I think from a purely theoretical point of view, uh, zero harm deserves massive criticism. But from an application point of view, no one applies it actually as it's originally specified. It is applied in so many different ways that just saying, you know, I hate zero harm because it doesn't make sense. It, is not a fair criticism of the thousand different things out there that are called zero harm, but are done in different ways. Um, and likewise, you've only you've seen safety cases done once badly is not a good reason to say I hate safety cases. But I, I think there is a more subtle thing that there are some things. It would be fair to say, for example, that you know, yes, this idea is good in practice, but I've never seen it done well. And at that point, you have you can start sort of linking the practice to the idea, and saying you know, if 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 there are no good examples of it, then maybe the original idea isn't quite as useful as people thought it was. So we're in a bit of a kind of a bit of a negative spiral here, Drew, about talking about criticisms of of other ideas and criticisms of what we see in practice and that. And I think this is the next bit's really important is we've got to stop focusing so much on the criticisms of what people say we shouldn't do and what people say is wrong in other people's ideas because we get in this endless cycle of negative debate. So I think what instead we need to be doing is trying to focus on the useful suggestions that people have, not the things that they say are, are not useful. And I think the example here is sort of safety one and safety two. So even though by its very title, it looks like safety one is in opposition from safety two, and most of the way that Paul Nagel talks about his ideas are um, do this instead of this or new in, new versus old or or so on. But then a lot of people don't necessarily would object to Hol Nagel's core, core ideas, understand work as done, understand why things go right as well as why they go wrong and work to try to support work going right more of the time. I think people would generally say that's a very rational, hard to disagree with point of view. But then a lot of the people who are, who are against safety too are more against when Hol Nagel talks about the criticisms of all of the other ideas that are out there or, or safety one that then blind them to his ideas about safety too. I think that's well said, David. So the next one is, what does the theory say that we should not do and why? 
So we've emphasized the importance of looking at what we should do. Sometimes there is theoretical work, which is critical reflection on theory and practice. And I think the main thing for practitioners to understand is that most of this work isn't actually talking to practitioners. You mostly, when academics criticize other academics, their audience is those other academics. We're, We're having debates amongst ourselves. And that's going to be true of any safety theory or practice, that there'll be a lively academic debate around it. And so practitioners need to be careful about what this debate does and doesn't mean for practice. And I think, Drew, it's, you're exactly right. So focusing on or letting the debate play out and being informed about the debate rather than necessarily using that debate to take some particular course of action in your own organisation. But it should, it should spark some curiosity because, I mean, if we're seeing a lively sort of academic debate about something, then it probably means to it should mean to us as practitioners that if we think we understand this then we're probably we've probably got more to learn about it so you gave the example of zero harm before there is although it's not really a current there is some level of academic debate around it which if we're passionately one way or the other as practitioners we should really be curious about why we're so passionately one way or the other when it doesn't seem to be academically resolved so you should remember that we were talking early on about the sort of level of reading to be ready to join into a debate and how we weren't necessarily suggesting that every practitioner should do that. But there are ways to be part of a debate without taking sides in it. So one of the things that I think is useful is to focus on the evidence that's being produced, not purely the arguments, because academic debates are going to play out in one of two ways. Either someone's going to actually win the argument and there's going to be some sort of consensus of ideas, Or someone's going to do research and get empirical results and come up with evidence to help resolve the debate and therefore to guide practice. And so it's important to know about finished debates. It's sort of more just interesting to follow along with the debates that are going on now. What you can do, though, is when you know that there's a debate, that's the time to start being a little more humble about practice and a little bit more curious about your own way of doing things. So, David, you mentioned zero harm is a good example of this. That, you know, if you know that there's a scholarly debate about zero harm... You don't have to take sides, but that's definitely time to stop getting dogmatic about whether zero harm is or isn't a good thing. You know, we shouldn't be going out there and being saying you know, everyone has to have a zero harm program. We demand that to work here you have zero harm. Or saying that you know, people who do zero harm are wrong and evil and don't know about safety. The fact that there is an active debate is a good reason to be less certain in our own opinions. And, and the other one that, David, I'm interested in your opinion, so I'm sort of coming from an academic point of view of this. I don't think it's helpful for practitioners or consultants to evangelize particular practice or ideas on behalf of the academic. I think this is one of the reasons that we get into very non-constructive debates, is that the original sources of the ideas, sometimes they're intemperate, sometimes they put a bit too strongly, but they also almost always have more nuanced positions. But then other people start arguing on their behalves, and they're much more likely to be ideological about it, much more likely to be dogmatic, much more likely to be exclusive of people who disagree and to start misrepresenting the other position. And I really have to ask you, what is the advantage of joining in a debate on the side of someone else, unless you have genuinely new arguments or new evidence to present? I suppose there's a, there's an underlying human desire for association that that probably is is driving some of that joining. Drew, we, we've spoken before, but we've never actually recorded a podcast on the role of gurus in safety. And I think it's just that some of the some of the some of the people in some of the academic people, if we think about 
a decker or a whole nagel or Levson. They have communities around them. They have they have a status within that community. They have um, respect and sometimes admiration from from practitioners. So I think it's probably no that not that different to someone cheering for their sports team on social media. Someone cheering for their their sort of you know favorite ideas or favorite academics. So I, I think that might just be a human a bit of a human condition to to evangelize the practices and the people that you agree and align with to get a greater greater support for your own ideas, I suppose, or the things you believe. No, th- th- that is fair. And I, I think there, 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 are, there are two separate things there. One of them is a desire to spread and share ideas, which is definitely worthwhile. So, you know, if you have never heard of Safety One and Safety Two, what's going to make you pick up the book in the first place? It's hearing someone talk about the ideas in a positive way and saying, hey, this is a good book, you should go and read it. Possibly even someone giving you a potted summary of the ideas. You're not just a good book, but it's a book that says these sorts of things. You might want to read it. And so I think that sort of thing is definitely positive. But I think there's a line that's crossed between sharing ideas and evangelizing those ideas. I realize as I say that, that I don't quite know where that line is. I just do know that it's something that I try to be conscious of myself. And maybe it's a sort of more not something to police in other people, but to be just constantly aware of ourselves. You know, what, what's my purpose in joining in here? Is it because I think there is knowledge that needs to be shared? Or is it because I think there is ignorance that needs to be fought? And if we can sort of like recognize that temptation to fight and argue and evangelize in ourselves and maybe rein it back in, in favor of the explaining, sharing, you know, yes anding rather than no butting. I think, Drew, all of our listeners or those who have seen some things on on LinkedIn in this space will know for themselves where that line is between sharing and evangelizing just from the stuff they've read. It might be hard to describe that line, but I'm sure we all see it um, all the time. Yes, and, and I expect we see it easier in other people than we see it in ourselves. And so maybe that's what I'm saying is, is let's try to apply, apply the same standards of that to ourselves that we get annoyed at in other people. So I think this sort of leads, leads into the next one, which is question six, what knowledge or evidence would move the debate forward and how can you contribute to that? True. I think, I think this is a great last question because at the end of the day, the difference in views and the disagreement is a constructive thing. It, it, it describes uncertainty, maybe in the, in the safety science evidence, it describes um, confusion in the ideas themselves. So the disagreement should be seen as a very positive thing um, and it should and it will remain positive if people ask themselves this question about what's going to move it forward and and how can I contribute to that so Drew we did write the manifesto for reality-based safety science I think we spoke about it on episode 20 of the podcast do you want to just talk about that in relation to to this question about moving forward so one of the ideas that we were trying to push through that paper was that we sometimes get confused about what academics bring to the table versus what practitioners bring to the table Uh, undervaluing both of them and sometimes reversing their roles. Academics deal in broad theories and generalizations, sort of principles of what is generally true. And practitioners deal in local knowledge, deep understanding of the particular circumstances at a particular place in time and what is working there. And sharing that knowledge between each other is very, very helpful. So practitioner knowledge very seldom is able to prove or disprove broad theories. But what it can do is it can take any theory and advance it forward. So types of things a practitioner can easily contribute is, I'm trying to apply safety to more in my workplace and I tried this and this is what happened. Just sharing that knowledge is really helpful. 
because it takes a broad theory and it adds something to it. It adds a practice that you have tried and it adds feedback on what you've tried. Or I've tried out two different things and this worked better than that. Or going further and, you know, deliberately building in collecting reliable information on those practices and collecting that information, reporting back. Uh, we did a trial in our workplace. We had one site did it this way, one site did it this way. This is the data we collected. This is what it showed. Those activities might be broadly informed by the theories, but the selection and application of safety practice has to be done by the practitioner locally. The information is collected by the practitioner and is shared back to the community. And you, that doesn't have to be necessarily positive or negative. It could be, I tried doing this and I couldn't work out how to do it. Have other people thought about this? What have they tried? That sounds like a very constructive discussion to have online, Drew, more so than some of the debates, which has been the inspiration for this episode. So for practical takeaways, like when you see a debate unfolding in, in safety, you know, competition of ideas or, or I don't know, personal attacks or whatever else it might, might look like, you find yourself in it or you're, or you're watching it. There's six questions we've gone through in, in this episode to ask yourself to either um, think about your contribution to that debate or to try to make sense of the debate that you are, you are seeing go on. So question number one is, what is the original source? So do I know the original source? Does, do I think that either side is representing the original source? What does the original source say? And how close is what the original source says to the details of this actual debate that, that I'm seeing? What does these, the theory say about how accidents are caused? So are we having an accident causation discussion or are we having a, a discussion about the ideas? What does it say that we should do? What does it say that we shouldn't do and why? And then I suppose, Drew, whether we're in it or observing it to reflect on that final question, which is, okay, what's the specific point of disagreement here? And therefore, what knowledge or evidence would actually move this forward? And, and can I play a role in that? I think that sort of sequence of, of questions and checks might actually help us be constructive in our discussions around safety rather than just um, personally upsetting. So David, I'm a little bit wary David, I'm a little bit wary about throwing this episode out and then asking people to respond to it on LinkedIn. So so th things we'd like to know are what do you find helpful to talk about and read about in the space of safety ideas? You th think think of times when things have not been constructive, think of times when you actually have come away from something thinking that you have genuinely learned something or you feel you've genuinely contributed something. And is there, in particular, is there anything we're sort of missing from this? Any tips you have for a positive engagement in that space between safety theory and safety practice? And our intention, Drew, I think in this episode is consistent with the intention of the whole podcast is to have constructive, rational, non-judgmental discussion about what works and what might not work to improve the safety of work. Um, and we'd, we'd like to just see more of that discussion happening. We like having it on the podcast and we'd like to see more of that discussion happening kind of in the broader safety community. So respond to this episode by flaming us on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 